I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to help you think bigger. Not in terms of how big your startup could eventually become. I think most entrepreneurs actually do a pretty good job daydreaming about that. But in terms of the ceiling for each hour of your work, the upside potential or limits you subconsciously create through what you choose to do each day. We'll help you make a few structural, strategic, and mental shifts that'll dramatically improve the impact of each hour. If that sounds a little jumbled, it'll clear up soon. There's an exercise we like to do with our founders called a monthly reflection. That is exactly what it sounds like. On the last day of the month, we pull out the calendar and ask a few questions. The big one is, what's the thing you did the last 30 days that created the most value? The thing that pushed you forward the furthest? The thing that helped you jump levels? What we started finding pretty quickly was that the things that created asymmetric value were nearly always the abnormal things. We did this a week or so ago with a founder, and she identified two asymmetric jumps. First, a conversation with someone who built a company that sold to the same customer our founder was trying to sell into. This new contact completely changed our founder's cold email and sales pitch, and who they should target as their champion. The updated approach led directly to three companies signing on for a pilot in the next few weeks. It changed the business. The second was a Loom video the founder sent in on a whim to an investor over Twitter. They thought the investor would be a perfect fit, so they whipped up two slides and recorded a 45-second personalized pitch. Whipped up is a bit of an overstatement. It took around two hours. But the investor responded, scheduled a call, and wrote the first check into the company two weeks later, after, not coincidentally, hearing about the pilots. Another fundamental change to the business. When we talked about the Loom video, the founder exclaimed, I'm not sure I've ever felt so uncomfortable hitting send on a tweet as I did sending that Loom video, but I'm sure glad I did. Two other things have become clear after these monthly reflections, aside from the insight that nearly all of the big level jumping progress comes from abnormalities. The first was that even after noticing how well these things worked, founders didn't change course for the next month. They didn't stack their calendars with abnormal tasks or even repeat the types of tasks that led to the previous month's success. If anything, they acted like they'd won the lottery and it would be stupid to play again. They were eager to get back to their normal daily flow. The second thing was that the rest of the work the founders did, the normal daily stuff, the reactive stuff that sops up huge amounts of time like a sponge, this was mostly a waste of time. These things didn't create any asymmetric gains. They never led to the founder jumping levels. At best, the reactive stuff helped founders tread water. Treading water won't allow you to make real differentiated progress. Treading water as your default state is the riskiest thing you can do. Today, we're going to teach you how to think and act big. And to do it, we've got to start by talking about something that breaks my heart. The Houston Astros won the World Series last week, and that stinks. I'm a huge Yankee fan, and the Astros tossed us aside as easily as they tossed a balled-up piece of paper into those trash cans they used to cheat in 2017. I might still be bitter. But I don't want to talk about the games. I want to talk about Mattress Mac. 
Mattress Mac is actually named Jim Mackingvale, and he owns Gallery Furniture, a chain in Houston that started by selling mattresses, as you probably imagine, and now sells all sorts of furniture. Mattress Mac very publicly bet $10 million at the beginning of the season that the Astros would win the World Series at 7.5 to 1 odds. That meant that if he won, he'd make $75 million. bucks. If the Astros lost, he'd lose $10 million. My first instinct was the same as yours. Holy shit, I should have started a mattress store. And for the record, I would have named it... Um, I can't really come up with a mattress pun right now. Let me sleep on it. Get it? That'd be the name of the store. Let me sleep on it. Sorry. Anyway, my second instinct was what a huge freaking risk. 10 million bucks at 7.5 to 1 odds? The Astros were way more likely to lose than win. What was this guy thinking? How could he afford to take that big of a risk? But after going through it, I'm pretty sure he was thinking the opposite. How could he afford not to? Because with the bet, Mattress Mac created a story. One covered by basically every news outlet I could find. If you're a sports fan, you heard about Mattress Mac's bet. When the Astros started off the year poorly, the articles came fast and furious. Mattress Mac was going to lose $10 million. When the Astros were winning, the tone changed, but the articles persisted. The focus went to the casinos. Would they really have to pay Mattress Mac $75 bucks? Could they afford that? All along, it didn't matter. Both outcomes were massive wins for Mattress Mac. First, because the amount of press he got was almost certainly worth more than the $10 million bet. He literally couldn't have paid for that type of coverage. And second, because of the way he leveraged the bet, and more importantly, all that press. Alongside the bet, he offered customers that spent at least $3,000 on furniture double their money back if the Astros won the World Series. This, too, got carried by the news outlets. If you lived in Houston and were an Astros fan, especially as they broke away from the rest of the league, how could you not buy some furniture? If you needed furniture, you certainly weren't going anywhere else. So Mattress Mac and his customers rooted for the Astros together, incentives aligned, and they won. A big chunk of the $75 million went back to customers who will be customers for life. The rest goes into the business or right into Mattress Mac's pocket. If the Astros had lost, he still would have had that huge increase in sales, the immeasurable free press, and the ability to commiserate with his customers, everyone still aligned in their, quote, loss. Mattress Mac's $10 million bet had no downside and almost unlimited upside, which becomes clear only after you take a closer look. The risk wasn't in the bet, the risk was in not making it, in trying to compete on a level playing field selling discount furniture, a race to the bottom trying to eke out competitors with sales or TV ads or store location or all the tactics all his competitors did too. Things everyone else already knows, places everyone else already competes, treading water. Most people spend their time solving obvious problems the same way everyone else does. A tiny group of people spend their time going after unique opportunities with enormous upside. Those people win. Humans are terrible at recognizing what's actually risky at knowing where the monster actually sleeps, which means we're terrible at thinking big. We don't know how. So let's talk about how you can find and take advantage of these sorts of opportunities after a little smooth jazz. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. 
Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at GetTackleBox.com. Back to it. Mattress Mac has been doing abnormal stuff for years. In 1992, he and his wife Linda were executive producers of the action comedy film Sidekicks, starring Chuck Norris, a movie I think I actually watched when I was homesick from school one day, and I remember it being very confusing. In return, Norris did several television advertising spots for gallery furniture. I don't think those had quite the impact of the $10 million bet, but Mattress Mac's mindset has been consistent. He makes abnormal bets. He even wrote a book on his business style called, quote, Always Think Big. Now, I know nothing else about Mattress Mac. He might be a looney tune who doesn't pay his taxes or leads a cold or does any other number of things. I don't know. I don't subscribe to anything else he does. But I love his mindset. and I want to help you have it too. I can hear you through the podcast though. You don't have 10 million bucks to bet on a game. You probably don't even have a product yet. So how does this relate to you? Let's jump in. You're the manager. There are two things that are hard about the Mattress Max strategy of pursuing abnormal things that might fundamentally change your business. First, making time for them. And second, thinking them up. Let's tackle both. First, making time. The majority of the work you do each day is likely reactive. That's the way we're programmed. School, jobs, life in general is you reacting to lots of things. For the most part, this works pretty well because for the most part, our goal is to stay the course to keep up with what everyone else is doing. But when you're working on a startup, your goal is to be different, for your average hour to create an output significantly different than the output anyone else can create in an hour. If I'm an investor and there are five founders all trying to build a startup that sells custom rugs online, and four of them are all doing the same thing each day, putting ads on Instagram, working with the same suppliers, pitching West Elm for partnerships, and the fifth is, I don't know, digitally putting four rugs onto the floors of people with big social followings and asking them to post the different pictures and have their followers vote on which free rug they'll get. That was a bad idea, but you start to get what I mean. The fifth entrepreneur's creativeness, the differentness, will start to draw the investor's eye. Being different attracts talent, investors, team members, advisors. It suggests that there's more of the coveted different way of thinking to come that you're willing to try lots of different things to find the one thing that'll work, which is the most elusive and highest regarded skill an entrepreneur can have. The problem with being different is the problem you probably just identified with my crappy rugs to influencers idea, that it's crappy and it probably won't work. Different things often don't. And the Instagram ads the other four founders are running, the ones with some millennial block coloring and a dumb meme of a pug rolled up like a burrito saying something like, snug as a pug in a rug, which actually isn't bad. Those ads would work fine. They'd convert some people. They'd give you the illusion of motion. They almost certainly wouldn't completely flop. And the rug influencer idea might get zero traction. So you'd think that small, predictable steps are the way to build a business because small, predictable steps usually get you far in life. Unfortunately, not startups. The way to build a business is to split the work. There's a graph I use with our founders, and I know there's no better medium for graphs than a podcast, but this one should be pretty easy to visualize. On the vertical axis is the likelihood of success. On the horizontal axis is the magnitude of that success. And now is probably a good time to point out that we're going to start doing better podcast pages we'll send out over email. They'll have the graphs we talk about, the links, the books, all that stuff. Sign up at gettacklebox.com slash no whisper ideas when you get bombarded by the pop-up. 
Anyway, your actions should be somewhat balanced with some things you do in the top left section of that graph, things that have a high likelihood of success and a relatively small amount of impact. And some things you do should be in the bottom right, things with a very low probability of success, but an enormous impact if they work. The top left sections keep forward momentum. The bottom right catapult you to new levels. Without the bottom right actions, your business isn't going to work. And since they all have such a low likelihood of success, you've got to try a lot of them and be prepared for most of them to fail. You need time and mental space for that, a structure to deal with the failure and continue taking big shots. The key part of the structure is prioritization, because the thing that has a 10% chance of working, even if the result is company changing, is harder to focus on than the thing with a 99% chance of working that has a best case scenario of keeping you treading water. Uncomfortable stuff requires willpower. My willpower is strongest the first hour of the day, before I feel like things have gotten out of hand. Also, my brain is sharp and flexible then. I'm most creative before the sun rises, before anyone else in the house is up. Working on the abnormal creative stuff first thing in the morning is my best chance at keeping that time sacred and not letting reactive work creep in. The next part of my system is a few prompts at the end of the day. If you don't do this sort of thing now, I couldn't recommend it anymore. For the abnormal stuff, I've got three prompts. First, what did I do today that has a low likelihood of success, but if it works, will fundamentally change my business? Second, what did I do today that made me feel uncomfortable? And finally, what did I do today that I'm confident no one else I'm competing with did? The key is to reward yourself for doing things, not for those things being successful. Only 10% or so of these tasks will work, so when the 90% fail, you can't get frustrated. That's the expected result. If you have an answer to these each day, in a month, you'll be in a different stratosphere than you are today. That, I promise you. The second part of this is the actual creative things you're going to do. Do something creative that has huge upside is just about the most difficult blank page prompt I've ever heard. Luckily, there's no reason we have to start there. A simple exercise will get the ball rolling. It begins with your current to-do list. Let's say I'm thinking about an extension of my service from last week, a meal service that delivers healthy lunches to parents to give to their kids for the week. Delivered on Sunday, five packaged healthy meals. Maybe my to-do list looked like this. First, research food startups. Second, cold email parents at a middle school looking for customer interviews. Third, reach out to principals at schools to try to get interviews with the parents through them. The question to ask is, what's something that I could do that would make the rest of this list obsolete? What would obliterate the list and give a 100x return? What would make every task irrelevant? Then I start thinking of ways to creatively amplify my time. Maybe I'd write an email with all of my friends BCC'd on it, asking them to introduce me to anyone they know that lives in a household where both parents work because I'd like to talk to them about helping out with logistics. I'd include a Calendly link. This is a fast way to get 50 interviews. Maybe I'd realize that there are hubs of parents I can tap into. Google, JP Morgan, and most other big companies have internal networks and groups. Nearly all have a parents group. I could search for people I know that work at these places and email them directly, asking them to pass along a prompt to the network saying I'm looking to help busy parents with logistics for their kids and would they like to get on a call with me. Maybe I send a Loom video to the founder of Maple, a food delivery service that failed in New York City to get their opinion on what I'm doing. These three things are fine. They came off the top of my head, but none of them really makes me too uncomfortable, which makes me think I should keep ideating. 
Being uncomfortable, oddly, is the goal. It's a great barometer because if what you're doing makes you uncomfortable, it'll make someone else uncomfortable too, and that means they probably won't do it. Remember, different is the goal. But those ideas are a start. The creative tasks I do are a mix of things with huge upside, things I specifically do really well, and things that take a small amount of time, or things I can test in a lo-fi way before spending too much time rolling them out at a bigger scale. Training your brain to look for things that make you uncomfortable and have massive upside is tough, but it happens with repetition. Here is an example. Today, I was searching through Twitter, and I saw a tweet from a woman named Kylie because I've been mentioning the responses a couple of times already. The tweet said, who is supporting super, super early stage prospective founders who just have an idea and want to learn more about startups slash learn how to validate their idea? Is there any type of formal program for people at this stage? A few people responded mentioning Tacklebox. When I saw it, the tweet was getting serious traction, a few hundred retweets and moving fast. People were active in their replies, saying things like, tell me when you find out, I need this. An uncomfortable and upside-driven tactic for me would have been to reach out to 50 alums and ask them to all reply to the tweet by mentioning Tacklebox. If there was an overwhelming number of people mentioning us, the tens of thousands of people viewing the tweet would see us. I couldn't possibly buy that type of exposure. But I didn't do this. Uncomfortable stuff is hard. If you do want to reply to the tweet, I'll link to it in the show notes. But that was not the original plan. Coming up with abnormal strategies takes practice. There's an Ed Sheeran quote I like, and I bet you didn't see that coming, where he talks about the creative process. He says that creativity is like a dirty tap, where the water that comes out initially is sort of shitty brown water, and you have to let it run for a while, and then the clean water comes later. You've got to get the bad stuff out if you want to get to the good stuff. You've got to get the bad ideas out, try them, watch as they don't work, then keep digging to get to the good stuff. You can't skip the line. Mattress Max started with Chuck Norris and ended up with a $10 million bet. Thinking big is about small, repetitive daily tasks with huge upside that other people don't see, and it takes practice. Ask yourself every night, did I do something today that, if it worked, would fundamentally change things? The monster. Ruby is terrified of the bathroom. For any newbies, Ruby is my 80-pound Bernadoodle that still hasn't quite figured out how to sink her front legs and back legs and tail and ears, so when she runs, she sort of looks like Forrest Gump when he's breaking out of those leg braces, except she never hits that smooth stride. Ruby is the best. Anyway, she won't go in the bathroom. If her ball rolls in, she'll sit there and look at it and whine, and then look at me, and then look at it, and then look at me, and eventually I melt into a little puddle, and I get it, because I'm a pushover. I swear she thinks there's something in there. A monster, maybe. Ruby is not terrified of traffic. We walk her in Central Park every morning, and if I didn't physically hold her back, she would walk directly into a speeding taxi literally every morning. She sees monsters in her bathroom, but has no problem leaping in front of a garbage truck careening down Central Park West. Humans are terrible at knowing where the monsters are, too. I didn't send that tweet to 50 alumni earlier because I didn't want to seem, what, conceited, needy, annoying? If any of them had asked me to do the thing I was afraid to ask them to do, I'd leap out of my chair to do it. The same way I assume they'd have reacted. But we see monsters. When I was growing up, I was a really good basketball player, but I hated new things. I didn't want to try out for new traveling teams. I didn't want to go to camps where college coaches were. I wanted to sit in my backyard, pounding the ball into the ground, completing hour after hour after hour of drills I'd learned and drills I'd made up. 
I'm confident that no one anywhere spent more time working on their game than me. A friend of mine had no fear of trying out for teams and going to camps. He practiced less than I did, but spent his time playing in games in front of coaches. Every single chance he got, he would play in front of coaches. He was being recruited by the same sorts of schools I was going into senior year until a coach there to watch another player saw him play. It was Jim Calhoun, the coach at UConn, and he saw something and he offered him a scholarship on the spot. I was probably in my backyard, weaving through cones. So much of life is putting yourself in the position where great things could happen, where asymmetric upside is possible. Then doing that over and over and over, balancing it with the momentum stuff, the drills in the backyard, but those alone won't get you where most people never end up. The monster we should be afraid of doesn't show up when you try those things. The monster shows up when you don't. This was the Idea to Startup podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We can be working on your idea in 72 hours. And if you made it this far and you like the pod, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes. It helps a ton. Have a great week.